Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Uh, what is God teaching his disciple Abraham? First, if it's this, I, he says, I want to be known as God Almighty. Now, who here today needs an almighty God? Not a part-time mighty, <laughs> mighty God, not a some places, sometimes almighty God, but no, an almighty God. Amen? We want a God who is strong everywhere and at all times and can come to our rescue when we need for him to come to our rescue. Interesting. I, I'm going to tell you this, uh, the first verse or two here. I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. A couple of interesting things about this passage. The first is walk before me is actually walk in my face. Or walk in my presence. That's that great word, panim. Hebrew word, panim. Say panim. Now, panim means presence, but I really like it also at the same time means face. So just another way to say face is uh, this whole thing of presence. And so most, most uh, people that translate this will say, oh, face, it sounds a little weird. So let's not do that. Let's, uh, let's put it in their presence. And I get why they do it. But I like face. And the reason I like face is because it's... It's just more personal. Presence is kind of this mysterious thing that's here right now. Uh, face is nose, <laughs> eyes, mouth, ears. Face is face. And I just like that person stuff. So walk with me personally, Abraham. This isn't some mysterious God that's far off. This is a God who's closer to you than you are to yourself. This is a God that's in your face, and I want you to be in mine. El Shaddai is interesting. This word of God Almighty. Now, El Shaddai is frequently translated God Almighty. It's used six times in Genesis, 31 times, by the way, in the book of Job. I want you to think about that. As Job is crying out to God, God's saying, hey, I'm God Almighty. He says, yeah, well, if you're so almighty, could you do something about the mess I'm in? And he does. Oh, he does. Uh, some of you may or may not remember the song, is it Dottie Peoples or someone? Uh, he's an on-time God. Yeah, remember that song? He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. No one's singing with me. Oh, whoa, whoa. On-time God. Yes, he is. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. Job's saying, I want him right now. I want that almighty God right now. He says, well, I may not come the way you want me, when you want me, but I'll be there right on time. If you knew everything, basically God comes in these moments. If you knew everything God knew, you'd come exactly the time he's coming. You don't know everything he knows. So you'd say, well, I'll just go help him right now. Not if that would mean a detrimental faith in Job's life or in other people around him's life. I, he may not come over. <laughs> I'm just saying, this almighty God is incredible, and he's incredible for a number of reasons. Some people think that is God almighty, but we don't know exactly what Shaddai is or where it comes from. We think we might know, but other translators will put it, God the overpowerer. I like that. He can overpower any situation in your life. God, the all-sufficient one. He's sufficient for your every need. Or this one, the God of the mountain. 
Whatever you think that mountain is, it's big, it's tall, it's beautiful. I am more so. I'm the God of that mountain. I created that mountain. Some messianic teachers say Shaddai comes from the Akkadian word Shadu, which means that mountain thing. So they would have thought Mount Sinai. He's the God of Mount Sinai. I just want you to know, we're supposed to walk in his presence. We're supposed to walk in his face. He wanted Abraham to. We feel like we're in the same predicament Abraham is. He wants us to do the same thing. Walk with his face in our lives, recognizing that when we do so, we're going to have a good, maybe not an easy life, but we're going to have a good life. Second thing is this. God wants Abraham to be blameless. Again, another Hebrew word, tamim, say tamim. And tamim means without blemish, without spot, complete. He wants us to be blameless. Now you're thinking, well, that's just no way. And much theology, I wouldn't say most, but much theology in this world today goes with sin management. There's no way we could live a complete life. No way we could live without sin. Sin is just what we do all the time. We just can't stop it. It just is part of us. It's who we are. Yeah, it is until the Holy Spirit enters in and says, I'm going to fill you so it doesn't have to be a part of your life. You can walk tamim. You can walk blameless. He wants Abraham to. By the way, David says all the time, I'm doing it. I'm walking blameless before David. You can read about it in the Psalms. He's saying, I walk with integrity. You're thinking, wow. Is that possible? One of my, you all know this. I've said it multiple times. But 20, Psalm 26, 1 and 2, I've just made it. Jesus. Uh, David starts off saying, hey, I've walked. I've done it. I've walked tamim. I've walked in integrity. I've walked completely. I've walked blamelessly. Then the second verse. It doesn't say these words, but just in case I'm missing something, examine me, O Lord. Put me to the test and refine, which is a fire word, refine, burn away everything that's not you. I call it the most radical prayer in the Bible. First of all, I say, I'm blameless. I'm walking just like you want me to, Lord. But I want you to examine me just to make sure. <laughs> I, I want you to clean me up. And we believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. Now, if you don't believe that, this is what you believe. You can't have it both ways. Either we can be blameless, we can walk with him completely, we can walk with him like he wants us to walk, or we're sin managers. Sin's in our mind, so let's, let's try to manage the sin best we can. And I don't think the Lord wants to raise you up to be a sin manager. This is what C.S. Lewis said. The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. C.S. Lewis said, he's going to make us into the creatures that can obey that command. We can be tamim because he asks us to be tamim. Now, I don't know. Let's let's get it down to a level where I can understand it. Uh, Let's just say... uh, Mom says to me, Matt, your room's a mess. Go clean up your room. I say, Mom, no, 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 no. C- come with me, Mom. So I'm going to disciple my mother in a few things here, all right? You think my room's a mess? My room's pretty good. Look at Todd and Kent's room. Now, Todd and Kent are my two little brothers. I'm about ready to see them. Tonight, I'll see them. We're going to the coast. I'll see them. And I'll, I think the first thing I'll say to them, just in honor of you, is you guys' rooms are a mess. I go in a room. I'm thinking, Mom, look at this room. 
they, they roomed together back in the day. Uh, we were a house with two bedrooms, and we had seven people. I don't know how we did it. We did it. Anyway, at one point, four people in that room. So it's really down. It's diminishing. Only two people. It's still a mess. Look, dirty. Mom, look. The underwear stacked up over there. It's disgusting. Uh, look, they brought in some mud balls. Why do you bring in mud balls to a bedroom and try to keep them in the room? Mom, uh, uh, look over there. Peanut butter sandwiches. They didn't eat the other. I remember when you said eat up your meal. They didn't do it. They hunkered down. They stole them out. They stuck them. Look, look the be- beds are a mess. This place is atrocious. She goes, they're not the standard, Matt. Come here. So I go with my mom. And she shows me her room. Beds immaculate. Made every morning. Dressers just so. Whole thing's vacuumed. No peanut butter sandwiches. No no underwear, you know, it's, it's, it's like, she goes, this is what I mean when I say clean up your room. Now, God says the same thing. He says, if you want to know how to be this, I'm going to show you. And what he does is he gives Abraham, eventually, not Abraham himself, but eventually he's going to give the people of Israel rules and laws whereby they can be. Because the law of God is a picture of who God is and a promise of what we can become. And when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, we can be all that God wants us to be. It's a lot more sophisticated argument than I'm going to give here right now. But I want you to know you can live the life God wants you to live. First thing is he wants to be known as God Almighty. God the mountain. God the all-sufficient one. God the overpower. Second thing is he wants Abraham and he wants you and me to be blameless. Third thing is this. He wants to be in covenant relationship. Now, nine times in these verses, God says, this is my covenant. Look at it. Chapter 17 there. Nine times. This is my covenant, my covenant, my covenant, my covenant. One of the key characteristics we've talked about covenant was uh, God made a blood path. He says, Abraham wants you to walk through the blood path. But uh, he he says, well, he didn't say Abraham walked through the blood path. He said, here's the blood path. And you know, Abraham how we do things around here. This blood path, we walk through this to show that that's what we want to happen in our lives. We want to be bloody like this. We want to be dead like this if, in fact, we don't live our part of the covenant. And what happens is God goes through the blood path and there's nothing said of Abraham going through it. So a covenant is this. A covenant is a lot different than a contract. We cut five characteristics of a contract, five characteristics of a covenant, but a contract, just one of the things we'll talk about. A contract sets up what you want to get out of this deal. A covenant sets up what you can do for the other party for their benefit. So God says, I'll walk through the blood path. Abraham, you won't. But I want you to know this covenant is set up so that I can help you live the kind of life I'm dreaming of for you. Not the life you're dreaming of. Your dreams are no good. Your dreams aren't nearly as good as mine. No, I got an incredible life for you. And I want you to know I'm walking through that blood path so that you know you're in covenant with me and that your best days are indeed yet to come. Now, how far does this go? Old story. Young man quits supporting his widowed mother so he can go and follow his dreams. So he does. He leaves his mom. and She's in desperate straits. She somehow makes it through the love of the community. But 
His dreams led him straight into a profligate lifestyle where he's drinking, he gets addicted to drugs, and, and he falls into the wickedness of gambling. And his gambling debt lands him in front of this wicked man. He's in front of a guy that has loaned him tens of thousands of dollars because this guy keeps saying, hey, I got a rich mama. She can stand behind this debt. It's not true. Widow mama back there starving. But nonetheless, he's standing for this man and the man keeps loaning him money. Finally, he's tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And now the man, the wicked man, wants payback. Guy says, I can't do it. And that mom thing, I got to tell you, it's not true. And so the young man can't pay. They torture him. They torture him. And in his weakest, most pained state, he promises them the unthinkable. I will pay you back with my mother's heart. His mother's heart. So like the prodigal son, he goes back home. Like the prodigal father, she runs out to him and hugs him and kisses him and so glad to see him again. Takes him inside and she does whatever she can to make a meal fit for a son that hasn't been home for years. When she wasn't looking, he took out his knife, plunges it into her chest and cuts out her heart. Cuts out her heart. He leaves the home with his dead mom inside, but he's got this heart in his hands. He's going to make his way to the wicked man's home with this heart, but he trips and he falls. And as he trips and falls, his mother's heart rolls out ahead of him just a few feet. And the next sound that he hears is the heart that's speaking. Oh dear, are you okay? Did you scrape your knee? I love you. How far will God go to keep his side of the covenant so that you can be blameless before him? He sent his son to die for you and for me. The fourth thing is he wants Abraham to multiply. He says, I will multiply you exceedingly. There's no better way to multiply than to have kids who will have kids who will have lots and lots of kids. Are you praying, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, are you praying for your fourth generation right now? Are you living today like your life will make a difference 500 years from now? So let me tell you, you all know this, but I'm going to tell it to you again. I pray for my fourth generation every day, for my great-great-grandkids who I will never see. I'm hoping I see some grandkids. But anyway, I'll never see these great-great-grandkids. I'll never see them, but I'm praying that in their life, they will love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They'll marry people that love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. There'll be no divorce for four generations that everyone will be spread out across the world for this great commission God that wants us to disciple the nations. And I throw in some other things. Now, that's the way I pray all the time. I think we all ought to pray for our fourth generation. You think, well, I don't have kids. It's okay. Because you ought to be investing in lives today in this church and in this community that will have 
a fourth spiritual generation that you are praying for. As we go into the prison and into the women's side and the men's side, that these spiritual people who have said yes to Jesus, even in the last month, would say, hey, I'm going to have spiritual people and maybe even physical people in my life, and we want to be praying for their fourth generation. Let me tell you one of the things. I'm, a, I'm like you. I get tempted. I know that's just a shocker to you. Matt Friedman gets tempted. Wow. Who knew? But I get tempted sexually too. And let me tell you, the easiest thing to bat away sexual temptation is this. Not going to do it because what I do today will have ramifications for four generations. I will not do that today because what happens in my life today, and that's just sexual, let alone lying and thieving and wanting to kick someone in the shins. And I mean, I mean, on it goes. This whole life of Matt Friedemann reverberates for hundreds of years from now. So do I want to mess up just because it makes me feel good in the moment? And I would suggest to you, it's important to live your life like it makes a difference. And that's why God says, I want to make you blameless. And then I want to multiply you exceedingly. And by the way, you're part of that multiplication today. Did you know it? I heard, oh yeah, I need, I need to hear about uh, 150 amens. Amen? amen? Number five is this. He wants to do all of this supernaturally, not naturally. He wants to be for you a supernatural God. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, and he's a hundred-year-old guy now. Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who's 90, give birth to a child? And Abraham said to God, hey, listen, I got a kid already. He's certified pretty good guy. Ishmael, may he live before you. But God said, no. Your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son. You shall name him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now, Abraham's thinking, hey, God, I don't know where you're from. I don't know what world you're operating in right now. I'm operating in this world. And pretty much, 100-year-old guys don't have babies. And 90-year-old women don't bear children. That's why we took action. Since we knew you probably weren't from around here and probably didn't know, you know, how it happens here. We took action. We got us a kid. So, good, right? God says, not good. It's going to take my supernatural power to make you virile, to make you potent, to make you the guy that can sire a child with an old woman. It's going to take a supernatural God. Guess what, Abraham? I'm supernatural. And y'all, it's a great thing to remember today. We do not live in the natural. Because we are people of God, we live in the supernatural. And God's going to do some of His best work in the supernatural. That's what God Almighty can do. That is what God the overpowerer can do. That is what the God of the mountain can do. That is what the all-sufficient one can do. He has a plan, and is a way to execute that plan that far exceeds the Hagar-Ishmael plan that Abram conjured up. Amen? The last thing is this. God 
wanted Abraham and he wants you and me to continue our journey to the circumcision of the heart. Now, circumcision, wow. How to explain that during a church service? Y'all know we do that easily. Circumcision is cutting off the foreskin of the penis. How hard was that? You okay? Everybody okay? Y'all all right? See, it's not that hard to do. That's what circumcision is. You're thinking, whoa. Well, it hadn't been done with the Israelites before this moment. But it's going to get done now. Now, that would be that huh, 100-year-old penis. Whoa, baby. This wouldn't do it when the kid can't tell at eight days old. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Hey, all y'all, right now, take the flint knife to the end of your penis and let's get her done. You think, whoa, man, are you kidding me? Why? No, God wanted to get their attention. That would get my attention, I'm just telling you. But God wanted to get their attention. Circumcision was a mark of possession, indicating that Abraham belonged to God at the most personal and at the most intimate level. There's nothing more personal and intimate than that. It was a sign of commitment that Abraham would trust and serve the Lord alone. Some people actually think, some scholars think it was some type of oath, like, cut this whole thing off, Lord, and if that's what I want you to do, if I don't cut off the things in my life that you want to cut off. I want you... My, uh, my daughter, I missed last week because my daughter wanted to take dad out on a date. <clears throat> so we went out on a date. I didn't know the date was at Notre Dame, you know, so let's, let's get up there. And she flew back, I drove back. But uh, had a little party. Well, I didn't know when I said yes, but found out and didn't know exactly how to maneuver this, but... Mark Goins had a wedding that weekend. Oh, no. So Mark makes sure every time he sees me that uh, I, I know about that mistake in my life. Well, Mark's over at our house. Mark's over at our house a lot, and I'm glad for it. I like to have the Goins family in my house as much as I can get them there. But Mark's over at the house. Him and Zeke and Zay are pretty good buddies. And him and Elijah, roommates and good buddies. And everybody's a good buddy between the Goins and Freedomans. Mark's, Mark's in the house, and uh, it's the next day when I'm leaving, and he's standing there. I'm thinking, hey, I learned something this week. I, have, I always figure if God teaches me something this week, it's probably for a reason so I can share it with somebody this week, and I just learned that week, which was last week, not last week, week before last, I just learned that in the Jewish bridal chamber, now the bridal chamber is where you go in and you consummate your marriage. We're virgins and until we come out of that bridal chamber. Then we've done the consummation. He says, Mark, I want to tell you something I learned this week. The bridal chamber had the same dimension size-wise as the Holy of Holies. And it had the same colors inside it that the Holy of Holies had. So when you went into this bridal chamber, know that you are in a holy, holy, holy place. 
And what you're about ready to do is a holy, holy, holy thing. And Abraham, Mark, Matt, when you do that holy, holy, holy thing, you're going to lead with circumcision. Because this isn't just a good night for sex. This is one of the holiest things you will ever do in your life. And you do it recognizing that a child's going to come from this kind of activity. And from that child, I'm going to do incredible supernatural things. Y'all, I stood up. I was telling him this. Mark, standing up and looking at me as I'm sharing this wisdom from the chair. I need to get up from the chair now. And I put my hands on him. And I prayed for that holy, holy, holy moment. Mark had his hands just like this. He knew exactly what was going on. He just put his hands up to God and received that from his former pastor. And I want you to all know, Dennis Kinlaw says, undoubtedly that place was chosen for circumcision because of that moment in Mark Gowen's life. Paul would say eventually in Romans, he wrote his letter to the church of Rome saying, circumcision is a matter of the heart. No longer we bound to physical circumcision. It was always meant to lead to a deeper spiritual truth. And the deeper spiritual truth is, cut off everything that's not of me in your life so I can have all of you for my kingdom and for my glory. Circumcisional heart means to remove the cold, dead, calloused, stiff-necked hearts and return fully with your whole life to Jesus Christ. It's a whole life orientation to Jesus. Remember mama's beating heart? Saying I love you? That's kind of what we celebrate now, but it's not mama's heart. It's the father's son's life.